Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. This is God's word for us. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. You may be seated. If I told you I overheard a friend uh, say, um, it's almost over, you would do what? You would ask some questions, right? What's almost over? Is, it, is the game almost over? You know, my wife has learned when I say the game's almost over, two minutes of football time is like 15, but is that, is that what I'm referring to? Or uh, is it uh, the pain, the difficulty that I'm facing, is it almost over? Or if you heard someone say it's almost over, would you think, man, they're, they're telling one friend's telling another friend about this terrible dating relationship and thank God it is almost over? Could be true. Some of you laugh because you've experienced this. It's almost over. Is it Orion and I having a theological conversation about the end of the world and we realize it's almost over? Jesus is coming. If I told you a statement like that, you would want to know the context, right? If you've done any Bible understanding Bible study, the, f- the first thing you know is context is king. Who's the author? Who's he talking to? What's the setting? Who are the characters? What's the plot line? What's the theme? We've got to know those things to understand and to interpret what's happening. I start with that because Philippians 4.13 is probably one of the most uh, one of the verses taken out of context more than any other verse in all of Scripture. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Thank you, Tim Tebow has put that on his eye black. We have coffee mugs, we have wristbands, we have T-shirts, we have wrestling matches with John three sixteen. Maybe uh, m- m- more used, but nonetheless, Philippians four thirteen has been plucked from this letter, which we've spent 12, 13, 14 weeks in, and sort of made a banner, but often without understanding the context. And and we do that for a variety of reasons. Some, um, we don't understand how to interpret Scripture very well and how to take it in context. Uh, maybe we're, we're, we feel a need, we have a, a, we're broken, something's going on, we feel it, and so we, we want to find a verse and apply it quickly. Uh, maybe we've, uh, we've been taught to read the Bible not very well, and we make every passage about us, and so we read it quickly and we apply it to our lives because we want some help, we want some, some, uh, some encouragement. But for whatever reason, we take Scripture out of context. When we do that, it actually really hinders us from that Scripture having its most impact for us. Thank goodness God uses all of us who've taken Scripture out of context and still uses it and still works for our good, right? Amen? Right? None of us have got it perfect. None of us are, uh, have it down so we can breathe. Okay, I did use that verse wrongly, but it's okay. Right? I see it on Facebook. I see it. We, we, it's okay. Um, so we all do that. But it's important to get the context. When you get the context, you get the understanding. And then those verses come alive in our hearts. And God's Word really has its meaning in our place, in our hearts, because it does what God's Word is supposed to do. 
Here, Paul is going to say he wants to teach us the secret. The secret is something significant. It's something powerful. It's something so powerful, Philippians 4.13, that it actually has the power to change our life. And so we don't want to pluck it out and to trivialize it and to miss the, the great benefit and import that it has for us. The secret to life. And so, what's the context? Paul is in prison in Rome. We've said this a few weeks now. Writing to a church, a small church, a young church like us in Philippi, 800 miles away. And Paul's in prison. And we know in the first century, prison was not a punishment. Prison was a holding spot. You didn't get sentenced to prison. You went to prison, and it could be extended. But you went there to determine if they're going to execute you, if they're going to flog and beat you. Or if perhaps they were going to free you. There was no prison time. You were there till they decided. So Paul did not know his outcome, what was going to happen. And while Paul's there, this little church in Philippi sends this messenger, Epaphroditus, to Paul to bring encouragement, to bring strength, to bring financial resources. We'll see next week as Ryan finishes the book. To bring a gift to revive Paul and his need while he's in prison and house arrest, they send him. And so Paul begins in verse 10 with his gratitude for that. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The idea of revived, it's blossomed. Because he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. But now again you have had opportunity. So Paul is thanking them For this gift that Epaphroditus has brought, he goes on in verse 14, he says, Yet it it was kind of you to share in my troubles. So Paul's grateful. That's that's good. Paul should be grateful. Paul's given a gift. Paul's given encouragement. But then he says, But not that I'm speaking of being in need. Thank you for the gift, but just so you know, I really wasn't in need. Now, that could sound kind of arrogant, right? Like, Come on, Paul, be thankful. Thank you, but no thank you. Is that what Paul's doing? Thanks, but no thanks. I think Paul is genuinely thankful. He says, I I knew you were concerned, but you didn't have a chance. But now you have a chance to give and help this ministry I'm a part of. Paul is truly thankful. Paul's ministry is dependent upon this whole idea of being one body. Paul knows about partnership. Paul knows he needs uh, the Philippians, in some sense, to support him. Paul talks a lot about us being the body, us being one, but many parts. So Paul is very aware of the unity of the body. He's been speaking, if you remember, in this letter about a church that's fragmented, having discord, he's pushing them together. He's talking about unity. Paul knows we need each other. I don't know if you saw, saw the article this week. Uh, it was a survey Christina Today did. Um, a Lifeway Research did it. And it was asking, it was a survey of some uh, 2,500 Christians, church-going Christians, uh, about their need for one another. I thought this was interesting. It said nearly two-thirds of churchgoers, 65% agreed with this statement, I can walk with God without other believers. I make this statement. I, can, can you walk with God without other believers? Two-thirds of churchgoers on the survey said yes. You can walk with God without other believers. 
goes on, the survey says, fewer than half of churchgoers, 48%, agree with this statement, that I intentionally spend time with other believers to help them grow in their faith. So less than half said they actually intentionally spend time with other Christians to grow in their faith. These are churchgoers. It's a little ironic, isn't it? We come together to gather, but two-thirds say we don't really need each other to grow in Christ. We come together maybe to have a worship experience in the same space, but not being interdependent, interconnected to one another. Paul is not in line with that thinking, church. Paul says, thank you for the gifts His whole theology is based on the fact that we are united, we are connected. There's no Lone Ranger Christians, there's no Lone Ranger churchgoers. We actually need one another. Paul has benefited from the gifts. But, Paul says, I'm not in need. What's Paul saying? I need, but I'm not in need. He's careful with his words. Because he doesn't want to undermine the fact that we're united. He's been pushing that the whole message. But there's also another message that's probably even bigger that the whole book's been about. And this idea of being satisfied about having joy in Christ. And so Paul's going to say, I rejoice that you gave. But verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation and context, um, I've learned... To be content. You see, Paul's afraid. If I make it all about the gifts, and I make my rejoicing all about what you've given, then it's become what? It's become circumstantial. I'm rejoicing because I got stuff. So now I'm happy. And wait a second, I've been telling you for four chapters, that's not where my happiness comes from. I don't want you to miss it. I'm pushing something deeper and more significant than just being refreshed by the gift. I'm pushing joy and contentment in the Lord. Do you see what Paul does? He says, thanks, but, let me make sure you know, it's not happiness. Happiness is that roller coaster emotion that goes up and down with your circumstances. Things go well, you're up. Things go bad, you're down. And Paul's been arguing, if you've been here at all, the last few weeks, the last few months, um, that there's this place of depth, of connection, the place with Jesus, it's called joy, that's so deep that the changing circumstances can't touch it. So I don't want you to miss the message, Paul says. It's far greater than happiness. And I have to say for us, as we're a church, as, as we grow, as we develop together, uh, we're going to have ups and downs. We've already had ups and downs. We'll have more of them. Um, and we've got to know that deep place. We've got to know that deep place in our, in our soul, in our body together, that's content in Jesus that we can weather the storms, the ups and the downs. So he says in verse 11, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You see what he says? I'm not in need, but I know what need is. Even in my need, I'm not in need. I found something in my need that's better than my need so that I'm not in need. (laughs) It's interesting what Paul's doing. 
He wants them to understand. I know what it means to be brought low. It's the image of a servant before a king. I've been down. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to have plenty, to have abundance, to be resourced. But I've found out, he uses the word, the secret. I've been taught the secret. Paul here with the word secret, he's using a play on words. Um, to drive his point hard. It's a particular Greek verb that's used in the Greco-Roman world to talk about initiation into a, a mystery religion. So Paul's saying, I've got the secret password. I've got the, you know, you fraternity. I've got the handshake. I've got the inner secret to the Christian life. He's taking language from the culture, and he says, you want to know the secret? I've got the secret. And the, the Philippians' ears should be open to hear. We should be, what's the secret? What's the password? What's the handshake? We love secret knowledge, don't we? Um, you know, the, was it, I don't know, it's been a long time now. The Da Vinci Code stuff came out, right? You remember that? And I was like, oh, so exciting. The, the secret knowledge. And then, uh, if you notice, every Easter and Christmas, if you go into the checkout line or on the History Channel, it's like, uh, the secret life of Christ. Was Jesus really married? Who was Mary Magdalene? You know, and it's like, uh, uh, you know, the Gospel of Thomas. Why has it been hidden for 2,000 years? You know, there's all this secret stuff. We like that idea uh, of, of hiding. And there's something new. And if we just found it, we would have the real deep secret code to life. <laughs> there's something appealing to us about that. Um, it, it wasn't new in Paul's day. And the century after Paul, there's a heresy we call Gnosticism. You may have heard of it. It's still with us today. Gnosis means knowledge. It was this idea that there was some secret knowledge. Yeah, we're Christians, but there's some real inner secret stuff we can know. We can whisper it to find out about it. And Paul's talking to these Philippians, thank you for the gift, but I found the secret. And they're interested, and they're curious. And he says the secret to life is contentment. It's kind of a letdown. He says, I've found, I've learned in whatever situation to be content. And this word content is another word that's not uh, unfamiliar to the audience. It was used a lot. If you read the Stoic philosophers of the early first couple centuries, they use the same word a lot, contentment. And they mean this. See if we mean this by contentment. It's meant, it's, it's a word that meant inner peace in the midst of life's variable circumstances inner peace in the midst of life's variable circumstances that sounds like what we've been saying right no matter what the context no matter what life brings what the storms are we're trying to find a place Paul's talked about joy this inner peace that surpasses the circumstance so what is Paul doing he's talking about a secret but he's using something very familiar to them a, a word that they're very used to this doesn't sound very familiar it sounds like a pagan thought what is Paul doing Paul is taking um, a context that's familiar and he's taking a word that's familiar but he's applying Christ into that context to be content to find that inner place in the first century, to be content was to find a self-sufficiency that allowed the person, the rational person, to escape through the mind, to escape the troubles of the body. 
In other words, to meditate, to find a place, to think things out such that you can actually be separated from your mind and body. Your mind can become clear that no matter what suffering and trial you're going through, you're separated from. You've actually disassociated the mind and the body. You've been able to get to a place, an inner strength, where you dug down deep and you found this resource to overcome the suffering your body's facing or the difficulty you're encountering. This is widely held in Paul's day. This is widely held in our day, isn't it? Right? Find the inner strength. When you're going through something difficult, when work is hard, dig down a little extra, go to that place and find the resources within yourself to overcome the difficulty and we think that's contentment. I am okay even though it's bad because I found this place through meditation, through mindfulness, through some strategy or technique to supersede the circumstances and the context. So, so far, Paul has said everything that sounds like the culture to the Philippians. Use the word secret. They know that. Use the word contentment. They know that. Even their definition of it is pretty close Except the inner strength. Except, how do you overcome? Paul says in verse 13, this is why the context matters. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be in want. I can be going through trial. I can be going through difficulty. I can abound in much. And I can find a place that supersedes my circumstances, not by my own self-sufficiency inner strength, but by the strength that Christ has applied to us. This is like Christianity 101, and yet this is the hardest thing for us to get and understand. Does it mean I can do all things through Him, him who strengthens me? Does this mean that your kid can be anything and everything he wants to be? If your kid's five foot four, he's not going to play in the NBA. You can claim the verse, name it, inner strength, it ain't going to happen, right? Does this mean my team that's 0 and 10 is going to beat the national championship 11 0 team? Because we believe I can do all things through Christ. No, that's not what it means. Can the 0-10 team beat the team? They can. That's not what the context is. Does it mean that if I believe and go deep and try hard and knit and grit it out that I am going to get my dream job? Because I can do all things through Christ and dream. It does not mean that, unfortunately. I hope you get your dream job. That's not necessarily what it means. Paul's in a context in jail. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He has so little control and power over his world. He's in a place where he is powerless in many regards. And yet he's saying he has found the secret to contentment, to life. And contentment is admitting that I cannot care for, I cannot make for myself happen to get through good or bad in my own strength. But I believe that Christ can strengthen me through whatever circumstance life brings. It sounds close, right? It's nuanced. It's, it's just a little twist, but it's the whole world of difference. 
It's the whole world. The pagan idea is find the resource within you to supersede your circumstances so that you're content and you're okay with the circumstances. Paul's saying find the resources that Christ can give to you, he imparts to you to therefore deal with whatever circumstances and situation that he gives you. One commentator translated the verse this way, I have power for all circumstances through the one who strengthens me. So it means you are, an, you are able to be strengthened to handle your crappy job. Right? You are able to deal with your 0-10 season with character and dignity and perseverance. Because you have been given a resource, not within, but without, that's come in that gives you the secret to overcome even the worst of circumstances. You have been empowered to withstand gossip and slander against you. And so, we've all used this verse in a variety of ways. We all do that. We've, we've all misused it. No knock on anyone for doing that. But the reason this shift is important is because um, there's sort of a, there's a new documentary came out, uh, The American Gospel. Have anybody seen that? I, I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. Um, I've heard, you know, good things about it. But it, it's, it's in this same vein. Or we've taken verses like that and we've tried to apply it to mean life's going to work out for me. Right? Because we really want it to work out for me. And so we take verses to use it in that way. And Paul's saying, I'm in jail and you're struggling and I'm going to tell you a secret. Not that you're going to get out of it, though I hope you get out of it. I'm going to give you a secret to life. It's not in self-sufficiency. It is in contentment, but not in the way the world knows contentment, but in the way that God provides through Jesus a strength that the world doesn't know. Subtle, but, but important. One more. God can empower me to handle the temptation of abundance and power. Because Paul says he's learned it in both. When it's been bad, he's learned it. And when it's been good, he's learned it. In fact, sometimes we need to know contentment, the resources, in abundance more than we, we need to know it when we're in uh, deprecation, when we're in need. One commentator said this about this very thing. We would naturally assume that Paul especially required God's potency, his power, in order to deal with the times when he was in need, right? We think we need God's power when things are hard. However, we may well contend that those who have plenty and who possess an abundance also require God's strength in order not to be sucked into self-sufficiency. You see how it came back around? To self-sufficiency. Contentment at its core is being content in Jesus. And when we have a lot, we're tempted to be content in a lot of things we have, which we think we did. Therefore, we're self-content and not really content in the Lord's provision of His grace providing for our need. It's easy to miss it. We think when we have much that we've done it in our own work, in our own hands, which is the exact opposite of contentment. Contentment is acknowledgement that we haven't done it in our own hands. Subtle, but it's important. How do you know if you are discontent or if you are content? I want to give you three questions. This is just like a diagnostic here. How do you evaluate this? I'm content, I'm not content. What's my heart doing? Here are a couple things to think about. 
What does your heart do when you face loss? If you lose something significant or lose someone significant, um, what does your heart do? If you lose something or someone significant, you should grieve deeply. Contentment and joy is not light and fluffy and easy. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying when you're in, you're in need and it's difficult, you're in prison or you've lost a loved one, that you're like, oh, this is great, love it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in that moment, you found a resource that's so deep that though your heart is shattered, you're okay. Though I'm in need, he said, I'm okay because I'm not in need. Do you see that? That's what he says. It's deep satisfaction in him. There's peace. When, when the economy crashes again, or there's another recession, you lose a lot, you can be sad about it, but you're okay. Because your hope was never in the stock market anyway. If you lose prestige and power, what do you do? Is your soul still well? Or do you feel worthless? When you get talked about, do you lose all sense of identity? When you, when you, when you're, uh, you, you, you hear bad things about you, are you shattered at the core? It reveals we're not content at some level. First question, what does your heart do when you face loss? Second question, what does your heart do when you, get, when you gain, when you get something, when you encounter abundance? There should be rejoicing. Paul just rejoiced. Epaphroditus came. Thank the Lord. He brought provision. Rejoice. But do you rejoice thinking, look what I've done? Do you rejoice in a sense of boasting in what your hands have made? Or is there a gratitude and appreciation? When you get much, are you generous? Are you stingy? If you're stingy, you've said, I'm not content in the Lord. I'm getting this. I'm going to hold it to myself because this is what's bringing satisfaction, which is therefore not contentment. The Lord is your heart full in Jesus. Again, nothing wrong with being abundance. Abundance is not the issue. Wealth is not the issue. The issue is contentment. What do you do when you have much? Final diagnostic as we close here. What does your heart do when someone else gets something? jealousy rise up envy you see social media you see what they got and like you're intrigued by it and you're drawn into it but you're also just kind of like ugh. And you wish that was you they got the award they got the car they got the whatever it says we're not content or maybe even grosser for us when someone loses something someone in your class or you're competing with they, they get demoted they get and, and and you're like oh i'm really sorry you know but in your heart you're just thrilled i have twins boy and girl we face this dynamic almost every day when one of them is disobedient and gets in trouble the other one secretly relishes the fact that they are being disciplined for all the unjust things they've done right what does your heart do we do that it, it, it says to us that Jesus really wasn't enough and Paul's whole message to them he, he wants them to know I'm really thankful for the gift guys like, I couldn't have done we're, we're connected 
but I want to be careful not to undermine the whole book by saying it's all about the gift. Because whether I had nothing and I was so low and I had nothing to eat and I was starving and I was suffering or I had ample, I've learned that Jesus is sufficient. I'm not self-sufficient, but that Christ is sufficient for all of my needs. And that might be victory and that might be His power to sustain in the deepest, darkest hours and times context is important context is important Paul has the secret the inner stuff it's like the you know the holy grail you know Raiders of the Lost Ark Paul's got the message for these Philippians it's contentment it's something that's so simple it's so basic and yet the culture of first century Philippi and the culture of 21st century Mobile has no idea about. We're up and down based on every turn and every circumstance and situation. But Jesus, I'm going to finish with this. When the most fundamental question of your life has been answered, I am in Christ. Christ has died. He is sufficient for you. He has covered your sins. We have eternal life now and into forever. When the most fundamental question is answered, which Paul has answered in Christ for four chapters, what's going to touch that? And so, I can do all things, right? Through Christ who strengthens me. Rejoice in our need, our connection with one another, but know that it is the Lord that satisfies May that be true for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for...